You're listening to Just Ask Ing, a conversation about our sexuality and how we might manage it more intelligently. Hi, welcome to another Stephen Ing podcast. I'm sitting here with my friends Jackie and Verita, and we wanted to talk about Black Panther, the movie. After that, we're going to be talking about toxic masculinity, and then before we're done, we're going to be talking about drunk sex. So, what an odd assortment of things to talk about. But somehow it all weaved together. You know, the common theme in all of these, (laughs) and that is we're learning how to talk about sexuality in a comfortable way, and hopefully everybody else is learning along with us. Uh, talking about Black Panther, though, it's just it's really great for me as a guy who went to the, see the movie by myself. My wife had zero interest in going to see yet another superhero movie to be talking to two women who I guess you both liked the movie. Loved the movie. <laughs> Loved the movie. All right. All right. So... Maybe we should be talking about what it is we all loved about the movie. Um, But I I specifically, I have to tell you, there were some things that I loved about the movie that were sexual and had nothing to do with the the way the movie's been marketed or the way that it was perceived by many. But I have to say, uh, although I have seen a lot of writing on this, uh, about the general who happens to be a very ferocious woman and uh, her small army of six soldiers who are all armed with spears and who perform magnificently in combat throughout the film. I have to say I was really touched by that escape from gender stereotyping that we usually see without exception. You know, there, there are female heroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, like Black Widow, for example. But in this film, virtually every woman had a heroic role in the film. Without superpowers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although gifted with super weapons. Did you notice that? I mean, did that oh, appeal absolutely. to you too? Yeah, absolutely. They were just so strong and courageous. It was um, it was refreshing. Yeah, to see it. Why now? Tell me. I have an. I have my idea why I think it was refreshing. What did you like about it? Well, I liked it because it um, it abandoned for me. It abandoned um, typical black female characters of one. They're either one or the other. If they're darker skinned, like the women who were in the in Black Panther, they're usually maids or prostitutes. And if they're seen as beautiful and desirable, then they usually look like they're mixed race. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge departure to see these dark skinned black women who were powerful and accomplished and brave. And um, beautiful. And beautiful. Yeah. All With wrapped. almost an otherworldly sort of beauty yeah. to them. I think because of the shaved heads, maybe. I, I don't know. The shaved heads and the eyelash combo was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and the tattoos. Was, yeah. I mean, it was just fabulous. But it wasn't... So often when we see black women on the screen, um, we're relegated to these very um, almost... Um, it, it 
you didn't see it in hidden figures and you didn't see it in this where we're so sexual. I looked, I think about Monsters Ball and mm -hmm. Halle Berry in that mm -hmm. film, which I still don't know what that was about. Like I, I saw it. I still don't know. Like it just bothered me. Um, but they, they weren't sexualized in this way. They were just strong, but they were still very pretty. Oh yeah. Well, I got to tell you for me, it wasn't just that they were strong, uh, because we, we've seen uh, an actress like Oprah play a lot of strong characters, but they always seem strong and highly flawed, or strong and depressed, or strong and so compromised by the cares of this world that it's really hard to see them triumphant and enjoying life, as all of these women seem to be. They all seem to be possessed of this amazing energy like uh you know what was the metal that had fallen from the asteroid uh do you guys remember that was on all their weapons oh we yeah. all forgot that okay zytanium <laughs> or something or was it vanadium or something it was something crazy <laughs> but that doesn't exist of course but it was really great to see them all you know for me it just felt like this ferocious femininity Reminding me of all those admonitions about don't get between a mama bear and her cubs. You know? you know, one of the things, um, and we should say that there may be spoilers in this podcast. So if you haven't <laughs> seen the movie yet, you might just want to just turn this off right now and come back afterward. Um, but the the interpersonal relationships, because two of the women in this show in the movie had had a relationship with one man. One was an ex, and one was a current. But that didn't matter. I mean, they all had a job to do and they all did their jobs and it never, and I, I thought for sure that was going to be a lot more relevant than it was. Yeah. There was no yeah. little cat fight going on in the no. background. No. Yeah. I thank you for pointing that out, Jackie. I think it was true of all the women here that they had bigger fish to fry, they had bigger ideas oh, they needed yeah. to consider. Yeah. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't even about, yeah. Yeah. It, wasn't, it was so not there. That it, it wasn't was, a boyfriend, girlfriend <laughs> drama. It was about... Uh, world geopolitical events that are transformative or dis utterly destructive. And they were a little more concerned with that than who got a ring put on it or any of that kind of stuff. I, I have to say also, um, you know, from, from my point of view, this movie was a real joy to watch. And I think on a, because I think about relationships a lot, I think about marriages. I've had two, um, still in my second one, thank God. And the first one ended so, so uh, epically that I think a lot about how we all try to pursue happiness. And it seemed to me that this movie stand, stood in, in strong counterpoint to an intolerance we have of male and female sexuality in that when the king gets all googly eyes, about his girlfriend, you know, in that one rescue mission when he's mm -hmm. going in. Um, and the general cautions him, saying, well, don't freeze when you lay eyes on her, okay? Just don't do that. And, of course, he does. And then he gets teased about it by everybody from the general to his sister and everyone else. And it's, but it's it's not mean-spirited. And it's it's somehow sweet and innocent that he can be so captivated by this woman he's in love with that it's really okay 
I mean, it's they caution him about it, but it's still okay. I don't know if that meant anything to you guys, because for me, what it means is they this couple and this culture they describe in Wakanda has the capacity to end that perennial loneliness that we see so often in our own culture, even between longtime married couples. Wow. <laughs> I think you almost left me speechless, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> does that make sense? That, what it I'm does saying? make sense. And the part of their relationship that I that I love that they showed in this touches on what you were discussing is that he wanted her to to come there and be there and be with them. And she was like, that's stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. And it's really... <laughs> like, you know, I can't be And it's not that here. she doesn't love Being him. Wifey, you can, you you know? can tell. Yeah. yeah, but there's more to her yeah. than just his arm candy. You know what I mean? Yeah. She, she's got, like, a mission, and she wants to do some things. And I got to tell you that for me as a man, that just felt so exciting. That combined, I mean, her personal dreams and agenda combined with the ferocity just made it really uh, a new archetype for what a partner could really be like. You know, somebody who really, for me as a man to think about somebody who really had my back and who could be there for me just the way I dream of being there for my partner. And not that everybody has to walk around carrying weapons Mm. 24-7. Well, I don't think she did. I think they did. They all seem to be pretty much. Yeah, they seem to be. They're wearing the little circle things on there. Strapped with, yes. They're strapped. (laughs) They're pretty much strapped up all the time. Plus, their bodies are weapons. They're all like. But but on that 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 you're talking about, and I love that too, Verita, is where he's like, but I just, I really need you. And, And it's because he loves her. It has nothing to do with her abilities at that point. He's not looking at her as a bodyguard or anything like that. And when, and you can kind of see her eye roll with, Fine. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'll go. Because she loves him too. And so she goes and she does what he wants, but it's so on her own terms. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's so very much at the end, but it's also, I mean, I agree, it's on her own terms, but he's embraced her terms by the end of the movie. Oh, yeah, we did tell you it was a spoiler. <laughs> that we talking about. By the end of the movie, he really does um, honor her goals. And he sees the importance of her goals, even if it's not something he personally is going to attend to for the rest of his life. And I, I, I just think, you know, in terms of two people sharing a life together, you know, you have to actually have a life in order to share it. And for so many people, they forget about that need to have their own individual dreams and thoughts and experiences to come back home and share with their, their beloved and in this movie, it was such, I don't know, I'm, I'm really hard-pressed to think of a healthier relationship model than in this movie. And I know that's not really the theme of the movie. I mean, it's really about a superhero, Black Panther, and how he gets his powers and what he does, and the drama around the succession when the father dies and, and who ends up with, you know, being the Black Panther. But... There was so the movie had so many wonderful, encouraging messages that I think are really grounded in very clear thinking when it comes to well, the other character and and romance that you haven't talked about yet is Shuri, and and her role and the sister. Oh yeah, and in in the comic 
She's wow. in the comic book. She's the smartest woman. She's the smartest person in the universe. What? Mm-hmm. Okay, because in my mind, I'm watching her, and of course, she's obviously very intelligent, but I was thinking of her as an analog to 007's Q, you know, where she comes up with the gadgets. Mm -hmm. But in, you know, this, I remember when I was 12 and these comics came out and I started reading them, and I just love that figure of Black Panther, but I never got into the whole mythology around Wakanda and all of that. Now, did, so you've been reading these. This is post-movie. Ah. I did not know this before, but I've been, I've read, I think, every article that's been written about it. And I read about that she was the smartest person in the universe in a comic book. Ah, okay. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, Verita, um, as a, you have a son, and I'm assuming that's who you saw this with. Yes. So, so what was his reaction to this film? He was so funny. He said, I like the way those girls were fighting. I want a girlfriend like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I get that. I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. He was like, I want a girlfriend like that. His eyes just lit up. I said, really? He goes, yeah. Well, and it's not like, I think it's not like every one of us men longs for um, someone with a black belt. It's, <laughs> it's really more about that she would be willing to tap into her inner ferocity as a woman when necessary for, you know, for a larger goal, whether it's protecting her family or as, you know, in the case with the general who was willing to fight her own husband to protect her society from uh, tremendous evil. That scene was so powerful. Oh, when she stood in front of the yeah. white Spoiler yes. alert. <laughs> well, Brita, you and I were talking about this before. What what was your take on that? Oh, well, I I didn't know what she was going to do. You know, you're sitting there like, what is she, what is he going to do? What is she going to do? What are they going to do? And when he, spoiler alert, <laughs> when he kind of just gave in to her. Well, tosses down his sword. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, and kneels. oh, this is like... This is so fabulous. It just, it, it absolutely punctuated her power. Yeah, and I found it, now you tell me what you think. I didn't think that his kneeling before the love of his life was demeaning at all. I thought it was just an affirmation of his adoration of her. I didn't think so. However, I had a conversation with a friend of mine um, who is a black male and he said that movie, that part of the movie almost made him not like the movie. Well, I would love to have a conversation with that gentleman because as a man, you know, I'm thinking about all the men in history who got down on one knee to ask for the hand of the woman they're in love with and how that really doesn't bother us at all, you know. And that is when we talk about romance in that way, what we're talking about is are you willing to be adored? Are you willing to give adoration? And can you tolerate it when it's directed to you? And I know millions of people struggle with that. So this is amazing and fascinating, and I wish we could talk about it the whole time. But we get to go talk about the more exciting, well, not the more exciting, the depressing <laughs> subject of toxic masculinity. So, Jackie, I, wanted, I know you wanted to move along, but I want to continue talking about Black Panther, but with a slightly different focus. And that, that is, I'm talking about the villain. You down for that? Kill, you too? Killmonger. Yeah. Rita, 
Jackie, okay. Because Killmonger is the complete antithesis of our hero, Black Panther, but he is so relatable. He is so well-crafted, and he has so much depth to his character that it's really hard. It would be hard to just hate him as if he were a two-dimensional comic book villain because he's not two-dimensional. No, he is not Dr. Evil. He is... No, uh, he there's There are layers to yes. him, many layers, and a couple of those layers are good. Well, that is absolutely right because mm-hmm. he actually has a heart mm-hmm. for the suffering. And he, he knows what it's like to suffer, and he doesn't want to see other people suffer the way that he has. Mm-hmm. The only thing, uh, you know, and I wanted to talk about him in relationship to the topic of toxic masculinity, and not to pick on men, because I do, do think there's something like toxic femininity, too, that someday we'll have to talk about uh, after I get another life insurance policy. <laughs> but when we're talking about toxic masculinity, um, I think that a man's role, and I think most of history has agreed with me, is to provide for and to protect his loved ones. And then to, if he embraces a larger role as a hero, it's to lay down his life or his agenda or his desires for the sake of those who are weaker and more vulnerable than himself. We see a lot of... Um, heroic figures through history, and I think we all have heroes we look up to. And then the villain comes along, and he just seems to be the opposite of that in some very significant ways, even though, as we discussed, he is a multidimensional character who's very relatable, very understandable, but, um, and you have to have figured out by now if you're listening to this, we don't care about spoilers. So <laughs> <laughs> go see the movie if you if you don't want to get spoiled. So so Killmonger, he's a straight up thug. I mean, he is a murder he is a murderer of murderers. He has these uh raised uh are they brands on his arms and on yeah. his chest for every person he's ever killed. And he brags about how many he's killed in how many different countries. And then, Verita, you were pointing out that, uh, or we were just talking in the break about some some killing that kind of slips by. But Jackie, you were the one. I well, his his relationship with women is not the same mm-hmm. as the other men that we've been talking about so far. No, oh, he, he hasn't so. he hasn't integrated it in, has he? Yeah. He reminds me very much of the. Um, the very real character of Shaka Zulu, who had these wonderful aspirations to do all the, these heroic things for his people. But then he was so um, twisted. He was twisted. He wanted to do these good things, but then he ended up like not allowing mothers to nurse their babies and just really horror, just horrific things because he, he didn't get, he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. And I think it was after the death of his mother that he just lost it and just became brutal. He was brutal. And I think Killmonger became this brutal person because he had been abandoned his father was taken away from him, and he was abandoned in this horrible neighborhood in a rough area, and he became twisted. Yeah, and I, I think for me, um, when we talk about toxic masculinity, his being a, such a great example of that 
is is at its highest not later in the film when he tries to kill the king and he tries to send weapons all over the world but when after after seeing his girlfriend earlier in the film and seeing how they rob together and how they're a dynamic duo together and all of that when she gets taken hostage by another villain who's holding a gun to her head and who is withholding from Killmonger something he wants, Killmonger doesn't hesitate and without even an instant of remorse showing on his face, just murders his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Shoots her down just so that he doesn't have to deal with that obstacle on his way to getting what he wants. Now, if that isn't toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. I don't know what is. Which is a really good um, segue into why we're talking about toxic masculinity right now. Um, all of the the gun sh- the shootings the school mm-hmm. shootings and 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 as you've pointed out many times Stephen it's always men who who do this it's oftentimes white men who who do this so almost exclusively I think so men. right so what's the you know what's the common thread what is happening here besides you know what is it AK what is the gun oh the AK forty seven AR fifteen AR fifteen besides that commonality. Yeah, you know, this it's it's funny when we talk about violence at this level, we get back to our real no, more normal reaction where we're repelled by it, you know, in our culture we're we're so entertained by violence routinely and I don't think no, I'm confident America has never had a violent film that's ever been rated X just for violence. We only get we reserve X for sexual matters even if it's loving and kind and and all of that. But when we're talking about boys uh, who are shooting uh, other students at schools, we're all very understandably horrified, as we should be. And because of that, our amygdala, that part of the brain that assesses threat, uh, gets stirred ferociously, and we want to do something to stop it uh, and make it make it never happen again. And then our, our politicians say uh, thoughts and prayers go out, and we're also frustrated with how nothing is changing. But when we, if you calm down long enough to just think, how damaged does a little boy have to get before he's driven to murderous impulses and thinking that the right solution to his life's problems consists of dragging a gun to school so he can kill as many people as possible? You know, that's somebody who is really suffering. And I, I, I can't say for sure with every single individual, but I do know after three decades of working with thousands of men that American men struggle with incredible levels of isolation and loneliness. And that's part of the problem when we try to get married, isn't it? We put so much pressure on her to be our everything. And some women have complained that their husbands want her to be his soul. Uh, we have so little skill in terms of connecting with others, we men, in terms of actually developing true, wonderful, loving, platonic friendships, uh, that we we get so isolated. And then we, we're left abandoning ourselves to the echo chamber inside of our own mind, where things are obviously overwhelming for all of us. You know, it's through sharing our burdens with each other as friends and family that, or even brothers and sisters in a church, that we experience some real relief. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. Other people care about me. 
Um, and and this this movie, Black Panther, not to get back to that right away, but what was the hallmark of his beginnings are all about isolation and abandonment and loneliness. So obviously there's a lot of different layers on, on school shooters and a lot of different things to be considered. And, and spoiler alert, we're not going to talk about guns on this show. Um, but what, so what can we do to raise better, more healthy boys? I mean, how do we help this? How do we help avoid that part of this? Well, you know, I'm old enough to remember a time when we did do a better job. And there were some things that were going on then that aren't going on now. And I think it's, it's of course, very challenging, but it's, it's challenging not because of the boys so much, because boys haven't really changed in the last couple hundred thousand years. Boys are still like boys always have been. But parenting has really changed in the sense that we are very consumed with making livings and, and making sure we make the rent and pay the car payment and all the rest of it. And quite often we allow the television set to raise our kids or now uh, the, the portable devices like the telephone or the iPad or the computer to raise the kids for us. And I think that with girls, perhaps it's not such a serious problem because girls inherently are just more social. They connect better in general than we men do. But boys need friends. And when they don't develop friends, that's not a big secret. It shows. We all know who the lonely, isolated boy in fourth grade is. We can see him. And if, as parents and teachers, we were willing to identify the lonely who had uh, less than adequate social skills, it would be really easy to train them in remedial social skills. It would be really easy to teach our children how to make friends and retain friends. But how? I mean, you're not going to say to your child, hey, I noticed that nobody likes you. <laughs> you don't have any friends. I mean, what what would you what would you do? But you can other parents can send their their kids in. My mom used to do this. She used to tell me when they when somebody looks like they don't have any friends, go be their friend. Oh. I'm not kidding you. And I had, you know, this collection of misfit friends. The My whole life, you know, when, yeah. But it was. Um, but she, she always encouraged me, like, if there isn't somebody talking to somebody, go be that person's friend. Well, now, it's you know, so you're, I think your mom was on the right track because we're all in this together. And if we really believe that, then children can also be part of the solution. And I think a lot of children would do more if, if they simply had their consciousness raised the way your mother raised your consciousness to the fact that these other people are hurting. But I remember, and they, I, I had been asking around, and they don't do it anymore, apparently. But when I was a boy, they used to routinely give you a citizenship grade. And when I went off to 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, which was a different school than my, my grammar school, you got citizenship grades in every class. Well, citizenship is sort of a passe concept, apparently, but it would be really appropriate. For, and, and I think any educator at a glance, could, could go ahead and evaluate somebody in terms of social skills. And a social skills grade of A, B, or C wouldn't be too pejorative. And people who get too low of a, of a grade for too long of a period of time would be mm -hmm. uh, designated for some remedial skills. 
and it would be it could be done painlessly without stigma and i think it really make a big difference so i think my kids still get citizenship grades do does yours son? no um but i don't think it's based on that it's not based on social skills a lot of the times when my um when my kids get bad grades it's because they're not paying attention and one of the things that I think is interesting, and this is a whole nother topic, is how school is kind of defined, designed for girls. I mean, physiologically, it's like if a boy gets antsy, or, and, and obviously this happens with girls too, but they don't want to sit still, they don't want to listen, they don't want to memorize, and that's bad. That's, that's well, they're made you, of snakes and snails yeah. and puppy dog tails, so they're wiggling all over the place. Yeah. And it's really, I think for boys, even boys without ADHD, it's school is challenging. It really is. But um, the, the part I'm talking about with the boys who end up shooting, you know, it's not every boy who ends up becoming a shooter, but it's millions and millions of American boys who are very lonely and isolated. It's just we don't all start off the race of life from the same starting position. And some of us go through abuse. Some of us go through alcoholism in our families. Some of us deal with uh, impediments to our learning. And I think in, after a while, these variables start stacking up. And for some people, they just become unbearable. You know, I know, I know we need to wrap up, but I can't leave this just sitting out there. Um, obviously there are a lot of lonely girls as well. And a lot of girls who have the same social issues as boys do, but they're not shooting up schools. Well, you know, I, I kind of, I feel that that's a pretty big distraction and because I know I'm never going to get an award for pointing out uh, maybe how boys are hurting more than girls because it's almost like a zero-sum game where who's hurting the worst. Okay, you win. Uh, but boys are clearly, by their symptomology of engaging in so much shooting, their fascination with weapons, their fascination with violence, boys are really suffering right now. And it's, I think, at epic proportions so that in this epidemic of violence that we have, we have an excess of toxic masculinity. And the remedy, of course, is love. And if we could teach boys how to get uh, and give the kind of love that they need, I think they would be a lot healthier for it. And of course, like right now, I'm thinking of boys under the age of puberty who simply need platonic friendships. Uh, but friendships, kind of like we've all seen in the movies, uh, including one Stand By Me that's kind of old now with uh, River Phoenix, where boys really learn to love their companions and they learn what loyalty is all about and they learn that they're there for each other. That's a powerful lesson. And in contrast, you've got a guy sitting in his bedroom looking at his phone for hours on end, maybe playing Candy Crush, maybe sending text messages. Uh, but he's alone. He is terribly alone. And let's face it, most of these guys are looking at porn. They're spending hours and hours looking at porn and that's, you know, I'm all for the pleasures of the flesh. And, but I have to say, there's a time and a place for everything. And developmentally, those boys don't need porn. They need love. So stay tuned or down the line, we will spend a whole segment talking about porn. We'll come back on that. I want to talk about something else. Okay, we're going to completely change the subject. This one has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. It kind of does. Oh, it does. Okay. Yeah, because I apologize. You know, it's about it's about sex and alcohol or sex and drinking. And I think it has a lot to do with well, what you brought up. There are a lot of girls who are still missing some important social skills. 
right along with those boys who are maybe even more messed up than the girls are. And when they go out on a date and they, they want to be physically close, they want to kiss and make out and touch each other and maybe go farther than that, nobody seems to have the skills to do that preceded by a, a really enlightening conversation. I really like you. I like you too. I want to kiss you. I would love that. That sounds great. Can we go farther? How do you feel about that? Nobody is talking about that. And it's, it's more like obtaining consent by Braille. And usually we are obtaining, because we're nervous and uncomfortable, we're depending on alcohol to get the courage to, um, to go ahead and make those moves. And then she maybe drinks too much, he drinks too much, they both go to bed, and the next day he doesn't call, she doesn't feel so good about it, and now they have what some people have called regretted sex. It was consensual in the moment, but later on it's not. And that is, you know, that's a real problem in our society. Well, and I remember in my younger days we would, we would pre-drink. <laughs> We would we would drink at home before we would go to the bar just to have the the courage to walk into the bar where we would have more drinks. Right. And I think that maybe one of your points is that's probably not the smartest way to go find a man. Well, we've talked on previous uh, podcasts about victim shaming, and I know that there are listeners who are going to be really sensitive to that. They don't want to hear anybody get shamed because the next day she felt raped and decided to do something about it. But we're not talking about that. I just want to make that clear. Well, and we're not talking about rape. No, we're not talking about all. sexual we're, assault at we're ta- all. We're talking about consensual sex. Under the influence. Under the influence. And the crazy thing is that we're talking about his being responsible. Why? Oh, because he's the man. He is responsible. Women never get prosecuted for sexual assault of a man who's been drinking. Okay, it's just like boys are the only ones who shoot up schools and it's never a woman who gets prosecuted for sexual assault, even if he was significantly more intoxicated than she was. So here's this boy who's, well, let's say he's 21, make it a legal drinking age. He's 21 years of age. He's never had any training on how to identify uh, any state of inebriation or intoxication the way a highway patrolman is trained so that he can give professional evidence in court. But the laws in many states hold him even more responsible than the highway patrolman because it is his job, even though he's been drinking, to determine if she's had too many drinks such that she would lack the ability to give informed consent, which puts an amazing burden on our boys. And frankly, I, my, my solution is I don't think people should be drinking before they have sex. Well, and, and not only, to come back to that, but not only puts it a burden on the boys, but also it's implying that the girls are not capable of taking care of themselves. Well, there's, I, you're right. I think there's a very soft sexism in the back of all that where, why we're standing up for soft. girls. You don't? <laughs> I Tell me what you think, Rita. I think it's blatant sexism. Um, and I, I think that, you know, one, we have to teach her. I'm going to sound so judgmental right now, I think. But I think that we have to teach girls that in order, part of taking care of yourself is not to drink and go out 
and have sex with somebody that you don't know. I mean, I just part of this is like taking care of yourself, just like you. Anything else of taking care of you yourself? You don't get in and, a car with strangers. That kind of thing, and yeah. then we have to tell our boys that if she's been drinking, I don't care if you've both been drinking, hands off. Yeah, like this isn't okay. Like we need to start having these conversations with our kids because on either end, it just comes back to to bite them both, either one of them can end up in a situation that could be so easily avoided by drinking soda. <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you know, know, water. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've got these conflicting desires and we haven't integrated our sexuality with our spirituality in such a way that I can maybe think about getting some of my sexual needs met by touching her and kissing her and, well, frankly, a few other ideas. And at the same time, to for all of us to be morally okay with whatever it is we're making a decision to do. And because we haven't done that and learned how to talk comfortably about who we are sexually, we keep drinking and laughing and joking, and then we stumble into bed together without really taking stock of what's really going on. Well, and one other solution that you've given, Stephen, for, um, is, a, is a wingman, a, a wing person. So, you know, just like a designated driver, it's like you, you rely on your friends. Don't let me do anything too stupid. Which is challenging because if your friend is drinking right along with you, a lot of times that whole plan goes down the drain, right? Sure. But, but in the meantime, you know, what, no matter how old we are, even those of us who have young, young children, boys or girls, we can be teaching them about consent. And consent and obtaining consent or withholding consent that's a very fun and natural conversation. We don't have to wait till our children are sexually active. We can start talking about how do you know if it's okay to hold her hand, and how do you ask if somebody if you'd like if you, you know if you want to hold her. Hand? And I'm starting to teach Skylar's nine, my son's nine, and I'm starting to teach him that now. That if you want to kiss a girl, you have to ask her first. You don't ever just walk up and kiss her ever. If you want to hold her hand, you have to ask if it's okay. If you want to put your arm around her, you have to ask if it's okay. Everything, you have to ask if it's okay first. And if she says no, you have to honor that. And, you and know, I never had one of those conversations with my mother. And I'm really <laughs> I'm delighted that you are doing that with your son. I just think that that's an amazing conversation to have. Only I, as a therapist, I would just say it probably needs to happen about a thousand times. Oh, yeah. No, it, it happens right. all the time, especially when we see, um, like we watched a Dateline program a few weeks ago about people drinking and taking advantage and, and all that. And I said, see, this is a good time. Remember when I told you that you have to ask? Well, this is one of those times like she's had way too much to drink, so she really can't say yes. She really can't. If you ask her if you want to kiss her, she can't say yes because her head's all messed up. Well, and legally she so, can't. Yeah. So he, I said, so you, you can't, don't even, just don't ask, don't, no, nothing. Not, don't even wait, go if you there. see a girl, yeah, don't even go there. And I'm hoping that it's so ingrained in him by the time he's dating age that it, it, he'll naturally just do it. Like he'll naturally do the right thing because it's so ingrained in him. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, you know that old saying about you catch more bees with honey than mm -hmm. you do with vinegar. Well, you know, for me, 
the carrot versus the stick approach would be teaching our boys and girls, no, you really want the good stuff. The kind of love and affection you're looking for, that comes out of somebody who totally is present. They know what they're doing. They're absolutely there with you in the experience, as opposed to somebody who passes out halfway through or afterwards doesn't remember even your first name, much less your last name. It's, it's because we love sex so much and we want our children to have a great sex life in their future that we teach them about sobriety in the context of consent. And it, and it doesn't have to be just with words. It can be a man holding his hand out across the table, you know, while they're having their first date. And he's obviously extending his hand to the woman on the other side. And she can look at it and roll her eyes, or she can look at that hand and put her hand very comfortably in his. It's not like every single moment, you know, I've touched the right breast. Now is it okay if I touch the left breast? <laughs> you know, we don't need to go down that that kind of literalism. But we do need to get get some comfortable language to begin talking about our sexual needs and who we are and what we want to do with this person. I don't even have to put it in the form of a question. I could just say, you know what I'm thinking about right now? I'm thinking about how great it would feel to kiss you. And then you're going to get some feedback one way or the other. Like, don't you even think about it? Or, yes, please, that would be wonderful. Or let's talk about that some more. Do you have a condom? So, so we, could be, we could be talking about all kinds of things, but the talking is such an important part of our relationships with each other. And that's about it for all of us now uh, here on this podcast. I think we've overstayed our welcome. I am exhausted. This is, we've covered a lot. So thank you so much, Barita. Thank you for coming and joining us. And uh, please stay, um, stay tuned to our um, website and we will let you know when we have new podcasts available. Thank you for listening to Just Asking. If you have questions for Stephen, please tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT.